This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado began an experiment three years ago on the southeastern plains. The goal was twofold, help homeless people struggling with addiction and prop up a struggling rural economy. CPR's Andrea Dukakis reports. Fort Lyon, 200 miles southeast of Denver, looks a lot like a college campus. But that's just about the only thing it hasn't been. In the 1800s, it served as a military post. Then it was a psychiatric hospital for veterans, and then a state prison until that closed in 2011. Now it's home to 225 people like Mary Burton. When I first got here, I was like relieved, you know what I'm saying? I felt safe. Burton is 55. She was homeless and addicted to crack cocaine before she came here a year ago. I knew I didn't have to drag my bags around anymore. You know, I knew I had a place to sleep, eat, you know, shower safely. Burton sits next to a friend on a picnic table in the campus quad, surrounded by majestic-looking brick buildings. She spent the last year working to stay clean. She says going to the group meetings held here daily helped her find herself. Burton says there aren't a lot of rules at Fort Lyon, except you can't use drugs and alcohol. You get cleaned up at your own pace. There's not a lot of pressure. Years ago, when word came down that the prison at Fort Lyon was closing, officials here in Bent County lobbied hard to find a new use. The controversial idea came up to turn it into a rehab center for homeless addicts. Many thought it was nuts to bus people from cities like Denver and Colorado Springs to this rural outpost. They questioned the $5 million annual cost, but enough lawmakers thought it was worth a try. The state kicked in money, and it opened in 2013. A lot of folks that you'll meet will say, this was my last shot. James Ginsburg has run this place since the beginning. He says nearly a 1,000 people have entered the program. The average stay is 15 months. Fewer than half have stuck with it and completed the goals they set for themselves. The campus has a health clinic, counseling, and classes. There's a movie theater and a game room. Critics question whether a place like this, peaceful and unstructured, prepares people to stay sober. Ginsburg disagrees. Yeah, I mean, do we tell that to the people that go to Betty Ford? Like, you shouldn't, why are you going to this idyllic place? Um, what this does is show people that you can live a different life. Hello, hello, come on over here. Bring all your stuff over this way. Welcome to the fort. And new residents keep coming. Every Tuesday and Thursday, a van brings a few down-and-out folks from around the state. Come on over, bring it this way. Put all your stuff over there. Larry Chapman is always there to greet people and direct them to their dorms. He's a recovering alcoholic and crack addict who's been here for almost a year. Like Chapman, a lot of people take on volunteer roles on campus, or they do work for small stipends. Do you feel, you know, different from the person that came in? 10 months ago? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Chapman, 61. He used to work with homeless people in Denver until his addictions took over. He says being here has helped him get off drugs and alcohol. And he says there's a community at Fort Lyon, something unfamiliar to a lot of residents, like one recent day of baseball out on the quad. The weather was nice. 
people were pulling muscles and twisting ankles all over the place. It was a blast. <laughs> it was. Nobody warmed up or anything. We just ran out there and started throwing and just laughing and having a good time. And nobody's drunk and nobody's high. Homeless advocates from other states have visited Fort Lyon to see how it works. Mary Burton, the woman hanging out at the picnic table, says it has for her. They taught me how to love myself again. They actually saved my life here. Burton has a calendar open in front of her with a big circle around March 26th, her 56th birthday. By that time, she'll be in an apartment she's already rented in nearby La Junta. It's not unusual for residents to settle here in the Arkansas Valley when they leave. An independent evaluator is doing a study for the state to see if the place benefits people long term. Director James Ginsburg says there are different ways to measure success. Certainly one person being off the street tonight is successful. That might be one end of the continuum, or 225 people aren't on the street tonight. We're sleeping indoors last night. At the other end is folks completing the program, going through school, being employed, living independently. Ginsburg says he's looking forward to seeing the results of the study. Preliminary findings are supposed to come out in August. Officials in Bent County are also waiting for the results. Many in the nearby town of Los Animas say maintaining a thriving environment at Fort Lyon keeps people shopping in the stores and energizes the community. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. And we've invited Andrea into the studio now to talk more about the relationship between Fort Lyon and nearby communities like Los Animas. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. So Los Animas is the Bent County seat, and Bent County really urged the state to make a rehab center out of this shuttered prison in hopes, again, of keeping jobs in the area. So what is the picture there? Well, the county has struggled economically for a long time. About a quarter of Bent County's population lives below the poverty line, so the area has a big stake in keeping jobs. I met Bent County Commissioner Kim McDonald. She says Fort Lyon will never be the economic driver the prison was. Mm. The prison had 200 full-time workers and a yearly budget of $21 million. The rehab facility has a budget of $5 million and 34 full-time workers. But she says there are other benefits. A Fort Lyon residents are free to leave the facility. A van will take them to Los Animas, which is seven miles away. And they do spend money. You know, they come in here and they shop and they bank and they hang out at the store and they attend, you know, 12-step meetings. They're, they're community members. She says the community has really welcomed them. She's had Fort Lyon residents to her church and to her house, and so have others. McDonald says they've caused very few problems in town except for the occasional person who's gone off the wagon. Residents at Fort Lyon even run a thrift and craft shop in Los Animas where they can sell things they've made. I talked to a grocery store worker who says there are more people in the store these days. But it's tough to see a really big economic benefit to the community at this point. Now, converting this old prison was controversial, and I wonder what critics of several years ago say about that now. I reached out to former state Senator Pat Stedman, a Denver Democrat. He was on the Joint Budget Committee and opposed the project. There was this sort of perception that this was really, you know, kind of a half-baked idea that was really about mollifying the people in the community that were upset about losing the prison jobs and that they hadn't really figured this out and we were going to create a brand new untested program way out in 
you know, out in the sticks where it was kind of isolated. You know, there were a lot of unanswered questions. But it got through the legislature in large part because it had a lot of support from Governor Hickenlooper. And Fort Lyon is now really a partnership between the state, Bent County, and the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless that runs the program. Today, Stedman says it's very hard to tell what kind of impact it's had on people who go there for treatment, especially since the expectations are so loose. They allow each person to define their own goals for the program and what satisfactory completion is. And so some of them are there, you know, I'm just here for 30 days of sobriety, and I'm going to call that success. And then they go back, and who knows what they go back to and where they end up. Other people are trying to be there for a year. Other people will tell you that they want to, their, their goal is to stay there for the full two years, the maximum amount allowed, because they want the roof over their head and the three square meals a day and all that. Stedman says he knows many people have been helped there. Uh, he also understands there is an economic argument for this. Supporters say it costs about $20,000 to house someone at Fort Lyon for a year. Well, it costs about $47,000 a year if someone's on the street getting ER care, for example, or landing in jail and not getting sober. That number comes from the state. So this is less than half the price, assuming it works. And I want to add that there are some extra benefits to residents at Fort Lyon that might be harder to access in a city. They can take classes at nearby Oterra Junior College and Lamar Community College, and many take advantage of that. As you reported, some folks stick around southeastern Colorado after they leave Fort Lyon. It's certainly cheaper to live there than Denver. Some rely on disability. How are they doing? Well, James Ginsburg, who runs Fort Lyon, says he's been surprised that as many as half the people who complete the program settle in that area. One of them is Richard Devlin. Uh, when he finished treatment, he decided not to go back to Fort Collins. He now lives in Los Animas and runs his own business at that craft shop I mentioned. Uh, he fixes up bikes and sells them. The community offered. They said, we want you to stay. And when they asked me to stay, I thought maybe, you know, they wanted me to just uh, hang around the store. No, they wanted me to live here. So I'm not going to say no to that, you know, because somebody saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Andrea, you also followed up with someone who left Fort Lyon a month ago and did actually resettle in Denver. How is he doing? I went to see Mitch Robertson the other day. He was sitting on the porch at the group home in Denver where he lives with other recovering addicts. He has a job now told me he'd been homeless and lived in his car for two years. He figured he'd either freeze to death or drink himself to death. Then he heard about Fort Lyon. He says being there and getting sober is why he's here today. Fort Lyon gave me the opportunity to take the time to reflect, which is very difficult to do when you're homeless. It's every moment of every day is survival. Robertson says in the 21 months he was at Fort Lyon, a lot of people didn't complete the program. Some started using again or just didn't like it there. Part of that is that addiction isn't the only problem people have when they arrive. There's a great deal of mental illness, and Fort Lyon isn't equipped to address that. And uh, I think that's common with the homeless community is there's a great deal of mental illness that is not addressed. Now, there are therapists on site, but these residents are some of the toughest to treat, and many have gone untreated for years. And Robertson says he sees room for improvement in other areas, too. I think it would help if there were some more structure um, 
and a few more requirements of residents because realistically a person can spend two years in the TV room and do nothing more than that. But Robertson says that's the exception, not the rule. Mm. I should point out that if you don't make it through Fort Lyon the first time, you're allowed to come back and try it again. Robertson stays in touch with friends he's made there and with a lot of staff members. He's also a member of a group called Friends of Fort Lyon, which meets weekly in downtown Denver. He says they talk about everything from recovery to what they did over the weekend. And there are similar groups in other cities and towns for former residents. So what is in store for Fort Lyon? We reached out to Representative Jonathan Singer. He's a Longmont Democrat who has some oversight power. There's a real question at the legislature about whether or not this is the most effective use of dollars in a year where we're contemplating budget cuts and other things will go by the wayside. Um, That's just the nature of having a balanced budget every year is that you can't spend money on everything. And so I think there is a sense at the legislature that there needs to be a, a real commitment to not only improving lives, but proving it through metrics. Singer calls himself a skeptical cheerleader for Fort Lyon. He hopes those metrics will be positive, but he will need to be convinced. Andrea, thank you. Sure. And you'll have an update for us when that evaluation of Fort Lyon comes out. I will. That's Andrea Dukakis. She co-reported this story with Nathaniel Miner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The lead pastor of a big evangelical church in Denver offered an apology recently. To my LGBT brothers and sisters and to their allies, I am sorry. I'm sorry for the ways I have added to your wounds. Further distance you from God, from the church, and how I've been a part of rejecting you. Michael Hidalgo of Denver Community Church offered that after a year and a half of prayer and discussion over whether to make the congregation fully inclusive. The pastor is with us, along with Reverend Dr. Paula Williams. She is trans and helped advise Hidalgo and church elders. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. So Denver Community Church serves as many as 1,500 people on two campuses Michael, where did gays, lesbians, and trans folks stand with the church before this process? I think there was a sense of that they were always welcomed, but there was always a, an uneasiness about was there going to be a moment where the rug was pulled out from under them? And because of that lack of clarity, the, the relationship always felt a little bit uncertain and a little bit strained. And part of our process was waking up and, and recognizing that, that this is not a way to build a relationship. Um, and, and, and to embrace them fully was to say, no, there is no rug that's going to be pulled out from underneath you. There's no glass ceiling that's going to limit the way that you can serve and belong to this community. So was there some explicit policy that said you can't be in leadership roles or was it more tacit than that? No, definitely more tacit. There was a, uh, our, our, our position, someone said, was a non-position. Um, and I think in, in that ignoring and in that being elusive, that's when we recognized that we caused a lot of wounding to people. Um, and that, that was the part where we came and said, no, we need to change our minds about this and we need to be clear 
uh, with what we are inviting our LGBTQ brothers and sisters into. Did this infuse sermons at all? Were there explicit messages from the pulpit that might have seemed to question the place of LGBT folks in your congregation? There was a, uh, I would say, a, a, an invitation oftentimes uh, to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. But again, there was, uh, since we've um, announced full inclusion, what we've heard is um, from those who are a part of our congregation and have been, we were always kind of wondering where you were. It seemed like we were welcome, but we weren't sure. And so I think, again, that clarity was a huge uh, barrier. How did that lack of clarity feel to you, Paula? I've been working with mega churches for decades. That was my business. I've preached in several of the largest churches in America. And one of the reasons they've been so successful is because they're culturally savvy, if nothing else. So they see the cultures moved on on this issue. And so what they've learned to do is to... Um, be almost purposefully vague on the subject. And so one of the questions you have to ask is, okay, I'm welcome, but could I preach here? And then you generally will see eyes start to glaze over. It's like, "Uh uh-oh, actually, no, we would not allow you into the pulpit or into any leadership position. And I pretty much will say to those churches, and I've worked with a lot of them, anything else is bait and switch. You know, anything that doesn't allow me into the pulpit or into leadership in your church would be bait and switch. Did you hear explicitly from DCC that you couldn't preach? No, but I wasn't a member at DCC. Mm -hmm. I'm a member at Highlands Church in Denver, another open and affirming, uh, formerly um, evangelical church. Um, So for me, coming into DCC, their conversation had begun, and so they were talking about how they wanted to be open to the LGBTQ community. But it is one of the questions that I asked them. Yeah, and so you came in as a sort of consultant, if you will. Um, sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to dig a little more into your own experience because you transitioned while you were um, parts of these these mega churches, as you described. Mm-hmm. And you had a pretty rough experience, didn't you, with that experience? Um, yeah, I was pretty much, I lost all of my jobs. So, yeah. And I had been really successful in the evangelical community. The day I came out, there were 65,000 page views on my blog. And most of those people were really angry. Why did Denver Community Church embark on this and bring Paula in, for instance? Was there some sort of triggering event, would you say? Uh, I think there was a series of events. I think what we recognized is this conversation, the volume's getting turned up. It's not going away. Uh, This is not a discussion. A lot of people relegate this to an issue of theology. And what we saw was, no, that This is human beings. This is mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters. And so as we participate in this conversation, we have to ask the question, who is God including? Um, and, And I think one of the lessons we learned from the history of the church is that God's always including far more people than the church is. Uh, and, and so that was really what led us to the place of beginning the conversation. And, uh, we invited Paula in and several others from the LGBTQ community so that we could hear their stories. Because for us, again, if we were going to keep this as a human conversation, we needed to have humans speaking to us and not just be reading 
about ideas. And so, Paula, what were those conversations like with especially the elders of the church? With DCC, it was absolutely marvelous because they'd already done so much work, and they were willing to take a fresh and new look at what their position was. Far more openness there than you'll typically see in a large evangelical church. Um, there's an evangelical church in the state, a large one, that will allow, allow to remain nameless, where the senior pastor said to me, you know, I've already moved on this, but my money hasn't. Hmm. And that is the support of the church. Exactly, right. Well, particularly the older support. Like we know in 2007, the, the uh, uh, Pew Research study in 2007 said 26% of evangelicals were supportive of marriage equality. The 2015 Pew Research report shows 36% of evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality. But the 2015 report says 51% of millennial evangelicals are supportive of marriage equality. So again, megachurches tend to be pretty savvy. And so when they see the market shifting, their market shifting, they're going to take a fresh look at these issues. They've done it before. They did it on divorce and remarriage. They did it on a transracial marriage. They did it on slavery. I mean, you can go all the way back to Galileo uh, and a geocentric universe. Huh. Was there a pivotal moment, do you think, in this months-long process of assessing where Denver Community Church stood on inclusion? Yeah, there, there ultimately was a moment where we said, we need to make a decision. Uh, we can continue to talk. We can continue to share ideas. But at some point, there is either yes or no are we going to limit the the way that people from the LGBTQ community can belong or not? And Is there a light bulb moment, do you think, Paula? Uh, certainly when I was speaking with the elders, there was the light bulb moment. And I think it's when I used the language bait and switch. I remember watching a couple of the uh, elders just with a, a, an aha moment for them where it's like, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. And expound on bait and switch one more well, time. Um, the, we would, uh, sure, you can do anything in this megachurch. Um, for instance, uh, the largest megachurch in the state will say that very quickly to everyone. That would be Flatirons Church. Um, they'll say, oh, we welcome LGBTQ people. So the question you have to ask if you're coming from that community is, well, in what way will you welcome us? Will you welcome us into full membership? Can we work in your children's program? Can we teach your teens? Can we teach adults? Can we speak from the pulpit? Can we be leaders in your church? And now it gets a little fuzzier. So it was about fleshing out their thinking in some regards and getting specific about what inclusion meant. And, and uh, at the end of this process, which again was something like a year and a half, I, I wonder, uh, Pastor Michael, how, how did the elders vote? Was it unanimous for inclusion? Yes. And we, we actually don't vote. I, I okay. know that sounds, uh, <laughs> for those who prefer Robert's rules of order, I realize this is probably hard for them to hear. But there's a sense in which we, we want to, we always want to pursue unity over uniformity. And when it came to full inclusion, every elder individually affirmed and supported full inclusion for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Does that mean minds were changed? Isn't that really the, the critical question of this story? Can you change minds on this I issue? I think the critical question is more so, does the story change hearts? Um, 
when people make a shift on the LGBTQ issue, it's because they know someone, Mm -hmm. they've met someone. They realize that, well, this is a relatively normal human being. It's why I tend to say yes to any evangelical church that invites me to come and speak, because they have an idea of what a transgender person is like. And when they meet me, they begin to realize, oh, actually, they're like me. And I think that's what causes the change is the story. We're story-based creatures. You know, we're we're narrative-based beings. We can't even sleep without dreaming. And we don't dream in mathematical equations. We dream in stories. So I think it's the story that that changes hearts. And I think that changes minds. What would you say, Michael? I think uh, Paul is exactly right. This is why we held out in everything we did. This is about human beings. It's about flesh and bone. Because when we can argue all day about ideas, uh, and oftentimes what, what prohibits movement forward is people hanging on to old ideas, but when things are made incarnate, when when there's flesh and blood in front of you, it becomes a lot more difficult um, to reject ideas, to reject uh, um, thoughts when they're when they're held by a human being. And so, for us, what we recognize is the most important thing we did was to sit with, hear from, learn from, um, and be embraced by. Uh, men and women from the LGBTQ community who were willing to come and sit with our elder team and with our congregation. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the movement towards LGBT inclusion at a pretty sizable evangelical church in Denver. That's Denver Community Church. Serves about 1,500 people on two campuses. And I wonder, Pastor Michael Hidalgo, if there's been some blowback from members of the congregation. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people have asked me how hateful it's been. Um, and I, I'm those, happy those were to my say, words. I'll say. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I think the real intense emotions have been from outside of our community, from around the country. But within our congregation. Well, can, I, can I ask about yes. those? What mm-hmm. do you mean? So you've had what? Social media postings or phone calls or emails? Oh, all of it. Yeah. Saying what? Oh, uh, we're going to hell and that we've abandoned God. And um, I usually get about a sentence or two into those emails before I delete them because they're not people who are interested in conversation. They're people who are interested in lambasting. And uh, I I think our country right now has enough um, volatile rhetoric. We don't need to uh, continue to engage it. And then what have you heard from the inside? Then? From the inside, we've heard there's been people who have been willing to sit and to listen and to engage the journey. We did a five-week learning group, and um, it was amazingly well attended. There was three to 400 people there every week, people who are waking up to the fact that to include the LGBTQ community is not actually to abandon God or the Christian tradition, but can be an expression well within the Christian tradition and rooted in the heart of did, God. Did you have to change your perception of any particular lines of Scripture? Like, did this get literal for you? Uh, I would say literal meaning might be the lowest form of meaning. Um, and I think what, it, what if anything, what we help people to see is this is not changing the playing field. It's expanding the boundaries. And again, I think if you look at the movement of redemption and restoration— uh, within the Bible, what you see is a continued expansion of what God is doing, not a narrowing and not keeping the boundaries the same throughout the ages. Paula, is there a lesson, just briefly, in this for other 
evangelical congregations, and let me say, ones in perhaps less liberal areas than the city of Denver. You know, I think we know the culture's already moved on this subject. And so I think it's going to be a matter of time, whether it's five years or 10 years, we're going to see most evangelical churches in America, particularly the larger ones, are going to become fully inclusive. Ultimately, this is not an exegetical question. It's a hermeneutical question. Those who say they take the Bible literally, I think um, we take it far too seriously to take it literally. And you're seeing a shift in that direction in the evangelical world. Is there a bit of optimism in that assessment? I think um, I've taught uh, contemporary American Christianity at a doctoral level, so I don't think it's optimistic. I think it's realistic. You heard there both Michael Hidalgo, lead pastor at Denver Community Church, which has become LGBTQ inclusive, and Reverend Dr. Paula Williams, who is an advisor to DCC's team of elders. Just ahead, dancing with a brain injury. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mobility can be a challenge for people with traumatic brain injury, especially activities that require fine motor skills, like dancing. Colorado College dance professor Sean Womack saw this as an opportunity. She holds workshops with her students and people recovering from TBI. One of the participants is Paul Ashby of Colorado Springs. He was beaten so severely that he was in a coma and emerged with a traumatic brain injury. Sean Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Yes. Sean, the seed for this was planted, I understand, because of a brain injury in your own family. Will you tell us about your sister? Yes. My um, sister suffered from uh, brain cancer in 2005, and the treatment for that brain cancer was um, full brain radiation. And now she's um, mostly cancer-free, but suffering uh, from what's called neurotoxicity of the brain, which is an atrophy of the brain so that, um, in a sense, it's accelerated aging and her brain is atrophying. And so I've witnessed someone who was um, uh, really um, working a lot with abstract, highly analytical thinking skills as a computer engineer, really struggling with um, the after effects of the radiation to her brain. And so it raised all sorts of questions for me about... um, the relationship of the brain to the body and mobility, and my relationship to her as a caregiver, since I'm now her primary caregiver. How would you say she's doing these days? She's remarkable, and she's very inspiring to me. Um, she's got a. She's always been very stubborn and strong-willed, and um, she's my younger sister, and I'm learning from her, I would say. You have been working with brain care for these dance workshops. Uh, this is a Rocky Mountain healthcare facility that provides daily support for people with TBI, helps them relearn skills they may have lost due to the injury. How did you pitch to them the idea of dance? It is an um, unusual relationship. <laughs> and because dancers uh, spend their daily life practicing to become more and more capable as movers. 
And so I, I shared with them that I thought there were some interesting um, and unlikely um, commonalities between people who are recovering from either acquired or traumatic brain injury and dance. Um, there's a kind of discipline involved in the recovery process. And there's a, a very um, demanding discipline to being a dancer. And so I was very interested in that commonality. And I was also very interested in student dancers coming into relationship with um, people who have experienced traumatic brain injury um, because it, it it took the students out of the, what we call the Colorado College bubble <laughs> and into real-world real experiences in ways that um, could be interesting and provocative for them as well. So, Paul Ashby, I'd like to explore your story a little bit and how it leads eventually to dance. Uh, you're, yes. a, you're a brain care client, and as we said, you were in a coma for months after being... That's right. About, being about a, seven, yeah. About seven. After being attacked and beaten, just briefly, what happened? Uh, well, I picked up these three um, from a... Uh, Bar called the uh, uh, the Golden Bee. It's just outside the Broadmoor Hotel, uh, and uh, these two individuals. I, I took them over to Fountain. You're a taxi driver, let me say. Uh, I was a taxi driver. Yes, I, I, I picked these two up. I must have hit the panic button at some point. I don't remember doing it. Uh, I think it's because she called for a third person to meet us at the drop-off point, where these. Uh, Three people uh, knocked me out with the very first blow, dragged me behind the taxi cab, gave me 17 fractures in the skull, uh, five broken ribs, broken nose, uh, two broken arms. And and I had to relearn almost everything uh, from scratch. That's what I've been doing for the last five years of my life. My word, what a violation. Um, What interested you about these dance workshops when you heard about them? Well, uh, I go to classes there for cognitive skills and uh, mathematical skills, but uh, they've come up with some very interesting classes, uh, uh, you know, such as dance, karate, yoga, uh, and many others. Uh, it's been very beneficial. Without it, I didn't have a purpose before, but now I do. So uh, the the dance is, you know, when they... When I joined their little program, uh, and they saw, you know, my ability that, that I'm a little more mobile than, than some of the others, uh, they took me in and uh, gave me a place, to, gave me a home, uh, so to speak. Were you afraid of falling? Uh, yes, uh, when you have to uh, relearn everything, balance is uh, the main issue. When your world is spinning uh, and I lived with it daily. In fact, I still do. Uh, every morning, you know, the world is spinning, and I have to reorganize myself uh, to uh, catch my balance. But uh, uh, but it's it's been it's been a tough, long road. But uh, I, I think I've uh, done fairly well. What have been the challenges of pairing those with brain injury uh, and students, Sean Womack? I don't know that there were really challenges. I found it really um, 
more of the challenge was bringing those experiences back to the stage for the dancers because the dancers were um, very open to the project. They, they all volunteered as dancers to do the project when I described it to them. And I think the dancers found um, moving with the participants um, at Brain Care quite meaningful, and they commented on that on a number of times. But then to bring this project onto the stage was much more challenging. It's not that we would want to represent or pretend to be the um, a person with um, traumatic or acquired brain injury, but how could we as dancers put ourselves in analogous situations that asks the dancers in some ways to de-skill, to not rely on the skills that they've so carefully um, worked on for years, some of them, and then do practices like, right now all I want you to do is um, never not be falling. Or the proper way would to, to say it would be to always be falling so that when you fall to the ground, and dancers are very practiced in contemporary dance of falling to the ground, when you fall to the ground that you don't just rest on the ground. The ground has always been our support place. The floor is our support. But what if you continue to redirect the fall so you're always falling or never not falling? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the practices we engaged in. So, and you, get to, you also get to teach an audience uh, – you know, what it's like to be brain injured. Uh, it, it, it gives them that, you know, sense of uh, belonging. Absolutely. And I, I know that, I think this week, Paul, you will be dancing with some of the students at Colorado College. So, Sean, this wasn't purely about having the students learn to see dance differently, but also to integrate truly in performance with some of the participants in the workshop with, with brain injury. Is that right? That's right. So the reason we invited Paul, that was an unexpected plus for us, is that Paul is a very skilled mover, a very natural mover. Uh, Paul can tell you about stories hmm. about climbing up to the tops of the top of Pike's Peak after suffering a traumatic brain injury. Yeah, so, and, and, and incredible um, determination. So, he's quite inspirational for the students, and was able to fold into our dance and the practices we were engaging in quite readily. And so, that was. Um, a happy accident, <laughs> we could say, that um, we met Paul and, and Paul was willing to come to our rehearsals and and we feel very fortunate to have him as part of the process. But there's also some video that takes place before the actual dance and stage takes place in which um, some we document some of the uh, workshop activities at Brain Care to give the audience a kind of frame for the work. Yeah. And so we see some of the participants um, from Brain Care um, in the video, as well as one student in the project had uh, created a documentary, which we will show at intermission. She created that documentary for a course in anthropology called Ethnography, which is um, uh, where an anthropologist becomes a, a participant observer of a particular culture and then um, studies that culture and then uh, create creates the scholarship or, or in this case the video that 
that shares that um, that um, that particular group's experiences with a larger public. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about an unusual pairing in Colorado Springs of dance students and a dance professor with folks who have suffered uh, traumatic brain injury and who often have trouble with movement. I also think, uh, in in your case, that um, Paul's short-term memory loss and learning choreography don't necessarily go together. And I know that a lot of those who have suffered brain injuries have short-term memory loss. Yes, uh, I've uh, still su- suffer. I have to write things down uh, that are of importance, uh, in- including my own address sometimes, because I'll forget. <laughs> but uh, uh, yes, uh, this program has been amazing. Uh, anybody with a traumatic brain injury, uh, if you know of anybody, uh, please uh, send them to rmhcare.org. And they'll get information about this program. It's it's truly amazing. What does it feel like when you're dancing, Paul? Uh, belonging uh, is would be the word I would use to sum it up. Uh, to to feel like a person again. Um, most people, when they hear the uh, words traumatic brain injury or TBI, they don't treat you as a person anymore. Uh, they overlook you almost worse than the homeless. So it's uh, it's it's been tough. Hmm. Well, to a certain extent, you feel invisible, I guess. Uh, yes, uh, to a, to a great extent. Until uh, uh, Sean and others uh, uh, take a moment of their time and uh, and, and give you a chance to uh, recapture some of what you've lost. Sean, before we go, any research to back up that this is beneficial or could this pairing become the the research subject? I think this pairing could become the research project be subject because the reality of it is it is an artistic project. And there is tremendous amount of uh, research in uh, neuroscience about the movement and uh, increasing brain capacity. But that's not what this work is about. It's about bringing these two groups of people together and to bring, to bring that to the stage in some way. Um, and, and can I just say one more thing? I'd like to plug the entire performance because... Yeah, if, very, very briefly. One, we have about 10 seconds. Okay. This is a one work on um, an eclectic evening of dance that includes ballet and West African dance and drumming, as well as other contemporary dance works that uh, address a large range of questions and innovations in dance. Yeah, they're truly amazing. Sean Womack, Associate Professor of Dance at Colorado College. She designed a workshop for both her students and people recovering from traumatic brain injury. Paul Ashby of Colorado Springs took part. You can see him perform tomorrow night at the Catherine Morham Theater in the Springs. You got to learn how to fall Before you learn to fly The tank town Tell no lies Before you learn to fly Learn how to fall
As the Republican Congress presents its plan this week to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, there's a lot at stake for Coloradans. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke to Joanne Allen to give us the lay of the land as this debate flares up once more. Republicans in Congress have now released their initial proposal. Tax credits could help people buy insurance and block grants could help states offset Medicaid costs. What could those changes mean here in Colorado? Well, the nonpartisan nonprofit Colorado Health Institute just looked at that. If you review healthcare in Colorado by the numbers, this is a big deal. Hundreds of thousands of people got insurance through the Medicaid expansion. It's been funded with federal money, but this year the state will have to cover 6% of the costs. Joe Hannell is a spokesman for the Colorado Health Institute. He says their analysis shows if the state had to split costs with the feds, the state's costs would total $780 million a year. That's about what Colorado pays to fund its colleges and universities. In short, it's unaffordable for Colorado to cover the ACA expansion on its own. If Congress were to chop funding for the Medicaid expansion, Colorado lawmakers would have to cut people's coverage or cut elsewhere. Of course, this is a source of contention between Democrats who believe Medicaid spending is worth it and Republicans who believe it's too expensive. Well, John, how many people are we talking about here in Colorado? Well, it's about 400,000 Coloradans, Joanne, who got coverage through expanded Medicaid eligibility, and another 100,000 got coverage through subsidies that helped them buy private insurance. So a lot is at stake for about half a million people. Who gained health coverage the most here in the state? Well, those with low incomes, as those Medicaid numbers would suggest, in fact, statewide, 1.3 million people, about a quarter of the state's population, is now covered by Medicaid. Also, young people, children in Colorado, have done really well under the ACA. The uninsured rate for those 18 and under shrank to 2.5%. It was nearly three times that before. Well, let's, let's turn to young people, young adults, those so-called young invincibles, Their participation was supposed to help keep costs down for others. Is that right? They're still the biggest group of uninsured folks in the state, so they didn't sign up in enough numbers to help keep costs down. But adults under 30 did see their uninsured rate cut in half. So now let's talk geography. What parts of the state saw people gain coverage? Well, the Denver metro area gained most. Not surprising, that's where most people live. In fact, every county saw an increase in Medicaid enrollment through the ACA. Again, here's the Colorado Health Institute's Joe Hannell. It's not that the Affordable Care Act was most effective in Democrat-heavy counties or most popular there. It kind of cuts across geographies. By percentage, rural counties, especially in southern Colorado, saw the biggest increases. And if you overlay this with a map of voting patterns, you'll find many rural areas that generally vote Republican have seen coverage gains. Now We've all heard a lot about insurance premiums going up. It has been a big complaint for many people. What have we seen here in Colorado? Consumers saw sharp price increases in the last couple of years. That's because insurers underpriced their premiums, hoping to pick up more business. But the plans didn't pay for themselves. So we've seen insurers drop out and prices rise, 
Even the number of plans on Colorado's individual market is smaller than before the first year of the ACA. It's less competition. We should note that due to the ACA, consumers can compare and researchers can track prices, something they couldn't do before. Okay, John, now what do all of these numbers tell us about the bottom line? Well, to use a good old Colorado weather analogy, it's either partly sunny or partly cloudy. Coverage gains in Colorado have been a bright spot, but the Affordable Care Act buying health insurance has failed to be affordable for a lot of people, and it comes with a considerable price tag for both state and local governments. We should note there's a link to this new report from the Colorado Health Institute on our website. That is CPR health reporter John Daly speaking with Joanne Allen. They talked about what's at stake for Colorado under the Republicans' newly released plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Finally today, we want your input on higher education. We're going to bring together some college presidents in Colorado and wonder what you'd ask them. Maybe it's about affordability, what you get for your money, is the degree worth it? Email any questions you have, news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. With thanks to Andrea Dukakis and Michael Hughes, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.